Good morning, everyone. And as you can see, my title for today's sermon is Transitions. We're definitely facing transitions today, aren't we? And I just want to say, before I begin, I want to say thank you for those that have reached out to me through phone calls and texts and other ways, just saying, hey, I'm praying for you, Ken, and the staff at CBC and the leaders there and all that's going on. And this week, uh, Chris Astaire reached out to me via Facebook Messenger, and she simply sent me this picture, and it was a picture of a priest, and the picture was from behind the priest. He was up on the podium, and behind him, looking out onto the audience, obviously nobody there, but there were pictures taped to each of the seats. And what had happened during the week, he'd encouraged his congregation to take pictures of themselves, print them out, and then he took them and taped them to the seats in the, in the, where he was at. So as he was preaching, he was looking out on faces. This morning, I'm looking out on a few faces, but not many, and I'm thinking about the regular Sunday morning. Over to my left, I would see John and Melva Rowley over by the windows. Over to my right would be the Watzigs and a group of college students and uh, younger people over to my right in the overflow area. In the very back, up against the sound booth, there would be Big Mike and Cookie sitting there, so they're not blocking everybody's view. Uh, very kind of them to do that. But every Sunday, and I love this, in the front row, there's the Bannisters and the Goodsons. You all know that, right? And so this morning, as I look out and I see all the empty seats, I'm just reminded of all of you, and I'm grateful to all of you. And my prayers are with you, and I know your prayers are with us that are here this morning. So transitions. All of life, if you think about it, is transition. Some of them are good. Some of them are difficult. For example, good. We just came into the season called spring, and I love spring. And we came out of winter into spring, and I love the fact that we've had sunshine this last week, and we've been able to get out and to do some things, and get out and just soak up the sun, and do some things outdoors, and enjoy the beauty. And it's felt so good. In spite of all that's going on, it's been great. And so that's a transition that I've loved. So the other day, in the beautiful weather, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get some physical exercise. So I went over to Gladstone High School, and, and I ran around their track. I actually did a mile. It felt great. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that again tomorrow because it felt so good. Well, the next day, I got up in the morning, and guess what? I was stiff. Every muscle, every joint in the lower part of my body was sore. And I realized, you know what, I'm going through a transition in my life called age. I'm getting older, and so doing things like running a mile, which used to be a joy, and I loved it, and I did not feel the effects of, now I feel the effects of running a mile. You know, the other transition we're all going through is this whole thing with the coronavirus, and my heart goes out to those of you who, because of the coronavirus, it's affected your employment. You're not able to go to work. You're struggling to just make ends meet because of this. That's a difficult transition. Those of you that maybe are parents, you're at home now. 
there's no school available for your children. Maybe there's no childcare now. What do you do? And so there's been a lot of difficult transitions that we've all been going through also in this. The book of Acts is a book of transition. It's the study of how we go from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from an age of law to an age of grace, from God's people, the Jewish people, to God's people, the church. So this, it's a book of transitions. And in today's passage in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18, we're going to see three accounts of different people going through different transitions. We're going to see, first of all, Paul in transition. Then we're going to see the person of Apollos in transition. And then finally, in chapter 19, the first seven verses there, we're going to see Paul and the disciples at Ephesus going through transition. So let's turn to Acts chapter 18, verse 18 through 23. That's the first section that we'll read. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kentre because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend some time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul, we're going to see in this section, is going through a transition. And the first thing that we see, and this is kind of an interesting passage, it says he had his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken to the Lord. What in the world is going on there? What that is referring to, and in the Old Testament, we know it to be the Nazarite vow. This was a vow of separation and devotion to God that people would take in their life. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Paul kind of summarizes the idea behind the Nazarite vow when he says this. He says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. The Nazarite vow was a vow of separation and devotion to God. It included three things. Number one, you were not to drink wine from the vine. Number two, you were not to cut your hair. You were to let it grow naturally long. And number three, you were not to touch anything dead, no corpses during that time. It was usually taken for a specified period of time, usually around a month or so. But we know in scripture there were three people specifically mentioned that took the Nazarite vow for life. Samuel, the prophet, Samson, the judge, and then, in Jesus' time, John the Baptist was a Nazarite by vow. Now, what's interesting, if you look at Samson, his life was exactly the opposite of the vow that he had taken, if you think about it. The first thing that we read about early on in his life is he touched a dead 
carcass, a dead lion. And then he made the riddle, and he messed around with the Philistines. So he's strike number one. Strike number two, he spent a lot of time with the strong drink and the wine, hanging out, drinking with the Philistines. So he strike two. He broke that part of his vow. And then probably the best-known part of the story of Samson is his hair, which he had grown long, and then Delilah, and the cutting of the hair and the losing of his strength. And so, unfortunately, Samson's life was breaking every part of the Nazarite vow. That was, unfortunately, his legacy that he leaves behind. Paul had taken this Nazarite vow. We don't know why, necessarily, although we're going to look at that a little bit. But what's interesting to me, and maybe in your mind you're thinking, okay, Paul, you've been talking about the fact that we're free from the law. We're now in Christ. We're not indebted to follow the requirements of the law anymore. So, Paul, why are you taking this vow? Why are you putting yourself again kind of in bondage to this vow? What's going on? I think a couple points need to be made. Number one, Paul had faced a lot of opposition from the Jewish people, but Paul himself was not anti-Jewish by any means. In fact, Romans 9, he said to God, he said, I wish I were cut off from God for the sake of my own people, the Jewish people. What he's saying is this, I would give up my salvation if they could come to know Jesus. That's how much he loved his people. So he's not anti-Jewish by any means. Secondly, these ceremonies and rituals that are part of the Old Testament, that are part of being a Jew, they don't make one right with God, but they have special meaning to them. And they can actually serve good purposes in people's lives. And that's what Paul is is saying here. If people understand their fulfillment and everything that they were meant to be is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, if one keeps that in mind, There's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. We see that today with Messianic Jews who still keep a lot of the Old Testament feasts, some of the things that are are mentioned in the Old Testament. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. It's important to point out that Paul, as part of the Nazarite vow, one would finish their vow, and then they would go to the temple in Jerusalem and they would offer sacrifices. And there's a list of three sacrifices in Numbers chapter 6 that one would offer. In this story, it's important to point out that Paul does not offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. He came to understand that that Jesus Christ had fulfilled everything that those sacrifices represented. So why? Why did Paul make this Nazarite vow? There's three possible reasons And in the commentaries, they kind of went back and forth over these. One is gratitude. Paul took the vows simply to say, thank you, God, for keeping me, protecting me, and providing for me while I was in Corinth. And he just wanted to express that through the taking of the Nazarite vow. That's one possible explanation. Another reason would be consecration. Perhaps the intense immorality and worldliness of Corinth made Paul want to express his dedication and separation to the Lord more than ever. He looked out and he saw the corruption around him and it caused him to want to just take this vow of separation and dedication to the Lord again. A third possibility is it's reaching out and petitioning God for future blessing. And these were all reasons why people took the Nazarite vow. 
maybe what Paul was doing was asking the Lord's blessing on his journey that he will be taking here in the days ahead. We're going to see that in the passage. So we don't really know. But he took this vow and he ended the vow by cutting his hair. Then in verses 22 and 23, it talks about another transition between journey, his second journey, and his third journey. It says, when he landed in Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem, he greeted the church, then he went down to Antioch. So in verse 22, we have the official ending of Paul's second missionary journey. He returns back to where he started, which is the church in Antioch. He reported to the church in Jerusalem what God had done on the second missionary journey. Then he went back to his home base, church in Antioch, reported to them what God had done. And so officially, this is the end of the second missionary journey of Paul. But we also have in verse 23, the third journey of Paul is going to begin in verse 23. He takes off again. In fact, in these two verses, we have some 1,500 miles of travel mentioned, just kind of briefly mentioned here. But Paul is going all over the place. And so in his life, He's journeying, he's transitioning from second missionary journey to third missionary journey. In verse 23, it mentions an area of Asia, Phrygia, that area up north, where he had visited on his first journey, established some churches, and then on the second journey in chapter 16, we, if you remember a few weeks back, God said to him, I don't want you here, I want you to go here. And he had closed some doors now, God is saying, now's the time. That door that was closed, Paul, is now open to you. I want you to go back, and I want you to strengthen the people in those cities. I want you to do that ministry now. Now's the time. It's okay. The waiting is over. The door is open. So Paul is going through a transition in his life, a transition. But now... There's an interlude, and, and the author, Luke, kind of inserts this. When Paul had left uh, Aquila and Priscilla behind, he, now he's going to go back and recount the story. What had happened after he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus? So let's read that story in verses 24 through 28. It says, Meanwhile, so there's the interlude. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. We meet this man, Apollos, and it says that he, come, he had come from Alexandria. So a little bit about Alexandria. We know it's an area of northern Africa 
near the mouth of the Nile, what would now be Egypt. It was a center of Greek education and philosophy. In fact, there was a huge library at Alexandria, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a place with a large Jewish population. A lot of Jews had migrated down to that area of Africa. And it was here in Alexandria where the Septuagint was translated. Septuagint was the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. And so by the time of Christ and by the time of the New Testament authors, they often quoted from the Septuagint. All this came from Alexandria. Now what's interesting is Apollos was a missionary sent by God to Ephesus. Why do I say that? Because there's no congregation mentioned there in Alexandria. There's no apostle sending him there. He simply arrives. We don't know the full story there, but he ends up in Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla were. Now, there's three things that are said about Apollos. I think that really summarize anyone who really is a good Bible teacher. So let me list those out for you. The first thing it says in verse 24, he was a learned man. He was eloquent is the translation there, which means either he was a man of words or a man of ideas. He had skill in method. He was the kind of person who, when he spoke, people listened. When he spoke, he engaged people. That's the kind of speaker that Apollos was. He had a good handle on homiletics. Homiletics, what's that all about? Homiletics simply means the way to prepare and deliver a a message, a sermon, a lesson. That's homiletics. He had a handle on that. That's who he was. He was an eloquent, learned man. He had skilled method. But it also says that he he had a knowledge of God's word. He had a thorough knowledge and that he understood the ways of the Lord. The word thorough there is mighty. It's dynamos. It's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. He was dynamite in his understanding of God's word. He got it. He had studied it, probably down there in Alexandria in the library. He had spent a lot of hours studying Hebrew old scriptures. And it says he also understood the ways of God. He had a handle on theology. He knew who God was. He knew how that applied to his life. So here's a skilled in his method, but he also had a handle on hermeneutics, which is how to interpret Scripture, asking the questions and learning how to pull things out of inductive Bible study. He had all this down. But it also mentions something that is maybe even more important. Behind it all, It says he was fervent. He spoke with great fervor. What does that mean? Well, the word actually means to boil in spirit. It's it's in there. It's this fire and it's boiling over. It also means bubbling over with enthusiasm. When he spoke, man, he couldn't keep it in. He was just boiling. It was was inside and it needed to come out. There's a quote by Benjamin Franklin He says this, not being a believer himself, but he says, I would often go to hear George Whitfield preach because there before his eyes, I can watch a man burn. 
What is he saying? There was something about George Whitfield in the Great Awakening period of time in our history. There was something there in his eyes that just burned. He had this fervency, just like Apollos, this passion in his heart to preach God's word, and you can't mask that sort of thing. It just came out. Now, where does this come from, this fervency? It's more than just a personality thing. Some people are just more bubbly than others. I get that, right? Some of us are just more naturally kind of gifted that way and personality, but it really comes from the Holy Spirit in our hearts, first and foremost. And secondly, it comes from confidence that what we're saying has truth and power behind it. Here's the reality. If I get up here on any Sunday and don't really believe that what I'm saying has the power of God behind it, guess what? I'm going to lack that fervency. But Paul has had it. Those are the three things. He had the skill in his method. He was eloquent. He had a knowledge. He knew how to study God's word. He had thorough knowledge of the word and the ways of God. But behind it all, there was this great fervency. Romans 12, 11 says, this should be true of all of us. Here's what it says. Never be lacking in zeal. Never. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We're all gifted by the Holy Spirit with a spiritual gift. We're all called to serve one another in love. So what Paul is Paul saying here is as you do that, as you perform your service, your spiritual gift, do it with an attitude of zeal and fervor, boiling, bubbling over through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he had all this going for him, but he was missing something. At the very end of verse 25, it, he sa- it says he knew only the baptism of John. So Aquila and Priscilla heard him speaking there in the synagogue, and they were, ri- they were riveted to what he was saying, but as he talked, they came to understand that there was something missing in his knowledge. He knew about Jesus. He knew about God from the Old Testament. He knew that Jesus was the Savior. He had repented, but there was something missing in his education that needed to be filled in, and Aquila and Priscilla were there just for that moment. So it says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They invited him over from the synagogue to their house, and they said, let's just have a sit down. There's some things that you need to understand, and we want to teach you some things. And I love this picture of this couple together teaching this incredibly gifted speaker things that he was lacking in his understanding and filling him in. He needed a to understand more the full person and work of Jesus Christ. Maybe there were some things we don't know exactly, but maybe some things missing there. He needed to understand the coming of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit had come in dwelling individuals and the idea of the church, how God was now moving. And this is the story of the book of Acts. So he needed to learn all of those things. Now in this story, I want to point out two important points. Number one, There's the teachable spirit of Apollos. Here's a man that was so smart, so gifted. He probably could have reasoned circles maybe around Aquila and Priscilla in most things, quite honestly. 
but he was willing to sit there in their home and take in and listen and to humble himself. And I think there's just this idea of being teachable. Apollos was humble enough to accept it. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, talks about this idea of being childlike in our eagerness to learn. 1 Peter 2 says, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk. There's just that desire that's there. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do we crave that? Do we crave that spiritual milk? That's what it's talking about here. So there's the teachable spirit of Apollos, but I also love the graciousness of Aquila and Priscilla. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed in this passage, the Aquila, Priscilla, back and forth. I mentioned this last week. Sometimes Priscilla's first, then it's Aquila, then it's Aquila, then Priscilla. They're together on this. They're working together. They're one. There's not one above the other here. But I love how they did it graciously. They did it privately. They could have called him out in the middle of the synagogue, stood up right there in the moment and said, you're wrong and here's 12 reasons why. But they didn't. They invited him over to their house, sat him down graciously and said, let's talk. I think there's something here for all of us in today's culture, and I'll just call it what it is. There's a lot of this going on in our culture, and it's this. It's Facebook calling out, right? We all know what I'm talking about. It's, I'm angry, I'm upset, I don't agree with you, therefore I'm going to post this on Facebook and just put it out there for everyone in the world to see my anger, my angst, and my disagreement and how I'm right and you're wrong and I'm gonna put it on Facebook and that'll solve all my problems, right? There's been times, quite honestly, where I've wanted to jump in because I've seen this happening. Even with members of my own congregation, I've wanted to jump in and I'm like, what good is this going to do? And here's the reality, none. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Disagreement happens. We have opinions. Maybe you haven't realized that, but we do, and that's okay. But how about doing it graciously over in, Lord willing, in time, a cup of coffee at Starbucks, maybe walking outside, taking a hike, and going, hey, something's come up. Let's talk. I I don't agree with what you said. Or here's an issue that's happened. Can we just talk about it? And here's what's going to happen. Instead of just shooting it out there in public, for public discourse and public shaming, you can have an opportunity to grow. You can have an opportunity to learn from that person. Maybe see what they were really saying rather than what you thought they said. So I hope we can learn something from the graciousness of Aquila and Priscilla. Verses 27 to 28 talk about him taking off for Achaia. This would have been heading west across the Aegean Sea back to Greece. And we know from history that Apollos ended up back in Corinth, in the church of Corinth. And he ended up being a very important person to that church of Corinth. And so what he's asking is a letter of recommendation from the Ephesus church, the Ephesian church, to the Corinthian church. And he takes that letter of recommendation with him as he travels. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 6, here's what Paul says about Apollos to the Corinthian church. 
What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I, Paul, I planted. I was there first. I came through Corinth on my second missionary journey. I shared the gospel. People came to faith in Christ. I planted the seed first. But look what happened. Apollos came next, and he watered the seed. Isn't that beautiful? But at the end of the day, God has been making it grow. I planted, Apollos watered the gospel, but it's God, all glory to him, because he's the one who makes it grow in the first place. He's the one who does the work in people's heart. It isn't me, it isn't Apollos. It's not dividing into factions here. We all are in this together. So we know from history that Apollos played a huge role in the church there in Corinth. Now we come to the final transition, and it's in chapter 19, the first seven verses. I just want to read this. This is, the, now we're back with Paul again, but this is going to be in the area of Ephesus here and some disciples, some men. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the, the road through the interior, arrived in Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked question number two, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That was the start, but that was not the full, the full message. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Let's talk about Briefly, Ephesus, just for a second. This was an important city. We had mentioned it earlier, earlier, but today, it's one of those cities that's just this treasury of archaeology. And I want, there's a couple PowerPoint pictures of Ephesus that I'd like you to see. And if you get a chance someday to travel, this is in Turkey today. It's still there. This is just what you would see if you were to travel there today. This is a theater and a gate to my right in the picture there that is still standing in still pretty good shape. The thing with Ephesus that make these ruins still so good is that there was not a lot of modern building in history like you see in other cities today. And there's another picture here that just shows a beautiful walkway um, where things would have been pillars and where statues and idols would have been and this is, again, in Ephesus today. It's just a beautiful place. We know from history that John, after he was on the Isle of Patmos and he wrote the book of Revelation, he came back and he lived in Ephesus, and that's where he died. His grave is in the city of Ephesus. He lived there all of his natural years. But what's neat about this story is Paul's making good on a promise that we had just read earlier in chapter 18 of returning He left Aquila and Priscilla, and he wanted to get back to Jerusalem, Antioch. He wanted to finish the journey, 
wanted to get to Jerusalem, but he said, I'm gonna be back. I'm, I promise you I'm coming back. It's like Douglas MacArthur, his famous quote, and you've probably seen pictures, I will return, right, in World War II, his promise to the Philippine people, and he made good on that promise. And he stood for them, and, he, and that's Paul, I'm back. I want to get back to Ephesus. So we have here the Ephesian conversion in verses two to five. Now it mentions the fact in verse one that they're disciples. And when we hear the word disciples, we think they're Christians. Well, here's the reality is they weren't, and here's a couple things to consider. First of all, maybe it looked to Paul like they were disciples of Christ. Maybe it appeared that way. The other argument for that is people were often called disciples of a lot of things. They were disciples of the Pharisees. They were disciples, but they were following the wrong direction. There were people who, and in this case, this would apply, there were people who were disciples of John the Baptist. They followed John. The word disciples simply means to be a learner, to be someone who follows that person around. So the fact that they were disciples doesn't mean necessarily that they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's two views that come out of this passage. The first one is that they were believers. They were already believers. And as we read this passage, and the Holy Spirit comes and they speak in tongues and they prophesy and things like that. There are churches and there are people who hold the position that you believe, that's the first act of grace in your life. Then, after a time, you receive the Holy Spirit and an evidence of that is you speak in tongues and you're involved in prophecy and things like that. That they are two separate events. And that is one view that's out there. There's two problems with that view. Number one, it doesn't take into account the context here of Acts 19. And it doesn't take into account the teaching of the entirety of Scripture. Let me explain that. In the context, simply in the book of Acts, this is a book of, it's a book of transition. There are times where things happen that are not necessarily normative. They're more the exception to the rule. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. Secondly, the overall teaching of Scripture is very clear that as believers, once we put our faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells our life. And maybe there's many verses that speak of this, but one is Ephesians 1:13 that says this. Paul speaking to the Ephesians, he says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. There wasn't a gap in time between the two. It happened. You put your faith and trust in him as your personal savior. You believed. You have the Holy Spirit in your life as a seal there. So what we see is the reality is these were not people who had already believed Jesus. They were people that needed to put their faith and trust in him. And Paul has two leading questions in verses two to three. The first one has to do with did you receive the Holy Spirit? Are you believers? Is the Holy Spirit part of your life? And their answer is no, we didn't even know there was one. His second question 
has to do with our baptism. Were you baptized? And the response is we were baptized with John's baptism. So we see from these two leading questions of Paul that these people needed to come to know Christ. And so verses four and five, it's very clear that Paul leads them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four speaks of this very clearly. It just says, Paul says, his baptism was repentance. You need to believe in the one coming after him in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not John. You need to put your faith and trust in Christ and be baptized in his name, not John the Baptist. And so clearly in Scripture, and in the book of Acts we see this, there's repentance. Then there's belief. There's putting your faith in Jesus. Then there is this, the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, which unifies us all as believers. And then there's this outward manifestation of what's happened inwardly, baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, identification with him as one Savior. That's the normal way that these things happen. So we have a what I'm going to call, I put in the note taker, Ephesian Pentecost. That's not really an accurate term because Pentecost means 50 days after the death of Christ and his resurrection was the Pentecost, but this is a mini Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes upon these, there's this pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them. They speak in tongues, which are languages, and they prophesy. So what's going on here? I think it's important to point out that in the book of Acts, we have Acts 1.8, which says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth out there. The Holy Spirit, the gospel, is going out from the center of Jerusalem to the region around, then to the Samaritans, then out into the Gentile world, and then to the ends of the earth with Paul's missionary journeys. What we see in the book of Acts, there's four, this is the fourth of and final outpouring of the Holy Spirit on groups of people who had come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The first one is Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and those that were up in the upper room. These were believers in Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, but they're in the city of Jerusalem. That's where it starts. That's the core. Then in chapter 8, Philip, the evangelist, goes out and leads Samaritans to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and John leave Jerusalem, go up to Samaria to verify what was going on, and it talks about the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritan people. They speak in tongues. There's the laying on of hands, this verification by the leaders of the church, the apostles of Jesus Christ, that this is verified. This is authenticated by them. Then in Acts 10, Peter was called up north to Caesarea where he meets Cornelius and people in his home had gathered. They respond to the gospel. The Holy Spirit is outpouring on a group of people. They speak in tongues. Peter's there. He witnesses. He lays hands on them, verifies it again. The Holy Spirit is moving further out now from Samaria 
into the regions north, Caesarea up north. It's the Gentiles who are coming to know Christ. And then here in chapter 19, the last group here in Ephesus of believers and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is the continued work of the Holy Spirit and this moving of the gospel out. And we see it. Laying on of hands. In Acts 11, verses 15 to 17, this is Peter explaining to the Christians in Jerusalem what had happened up there in Caesarea. And here's what he says. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us. Day of Pentecost, at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? This is God's act here. And the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was simply a visible outward symbol of God's work as it's moving out from Jerusalem. There were no longer Samaritans. There were no longer disciples of John. There were no longer Gentiles. There were Christians. That's what we're seeing here. So transitions. Paul, continuing to transition in his love and his desire to spread the word in the journeys. We see Apollos transitioning into a greater understanding of who Jesus is through Aquila and Priscilla. And then we have these 12 men, these disciples, who become literal disciples of Jesus Christ. And this whole process, this transition of accepting Gentiles into the Christian church. And it's symbolized by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In conclusion, a couple things to think about. One is, I think we could all learn to be a little bit more like Aquila and Priscilla. Graciously looking for opportunities to teach others. Instead of calling people out publicly, let's talk to people. Let's encourage people in a way that benefits them and doesn't humiliate them and and tear them down. Let's practice hospitality, opening up homes. That's the story of Aquila and Priscilla. Everywhere they went, their home was just open for people to come and hear about Jesus. Let's be like Apollos. Let's be lifetime learners. You know what? The more years I get into God's word, the more I realize, the less I know about the word of God. We're all in this together. Let's keep learning until the day God calls us home. And finally, Let's think about transition in this way. Whether life is good, whether life is difficult, no matter what is going on, we're all in transition. What is that transition? Romans 8.39 tells us that God's purpose in transition in our life as believers is conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. The transition in my life is always about that, whether it be easy and good or difficult, and I don't like it. It's all about conforming me to the image of his son. And finally, if you haven't made the most important transition in your life, and if you're out there maybe watching, it's time to transition from someone who doesn't know about Jesus to someone who accepts him as their savior, from being in sin to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, from being in Adam to being in Christ. That's my encouragement today, to transition into a life of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen.